0: I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. On this episode, I have a conversation with Megan Hatcher Mays, the Director of Democracy Policy for the Indivisible Project. Megan joins me to discuss DC statehood and the recent historic vote in the House of Representatives to grant statehood to the District of Columbia. If this bill were to be approved by the Senate, DC of course would become the 51st state in the nation. So here is my conversation with Megan Hatcher-Mays. Megan Hatcher-Mays, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So DC statehood, right? The bill passed in the House. I think it was last week. It was recently, right? As expected. It was expected to pass in the House. And it will most likely go to the Senate, where you know good bills go to die. Correct. <laughs> you know, I mean, the Senate has been frozen for a decade, right? I mean, I don't know why is this even politicized. That's a good question. Basically, what what's going on here
1: is that um, DC, uh, small but mighty. What we lack in square footage, we make up for with population. There's about 700,000 people who live in the District of Columbia, and most of the people who live here are not. White. Um, actually, up until recently, the majority of the people living in the city were black people. And, you know, anytime you have a situation where enfranchising a lot of black people are on the table, it raises Republicans' hackles, right? They don't like that. Um, so they don't want to grant us statehood, one, because we are a majority non white city, and two, because we tend to vote for Democrats when we elect people. To elected office here in d c and in Congress, we do have a non-voting delegate in Congress. We typically elect Democrats or progressives. So this is politicized because the Senate, which kind of disproportionately gives power to a shrinking like ideological minority, it, it tends to overrepresent small, rural, mostly white states that which is great for Republicans but bad for everybody else, when you start to talk about weakening that conservative stranglehold over the Senate and giving more power to progressives, Black people and people of color, it tends to make Republicans uh, pretty upset.
0: Right. You know, I hadn't thought about it this way until you just mentioned it. So if D.C. were a state, right, it would be I think the only state in the union with the majority of black residents, like you have Georgia, for instance, which has a you know higher percentage of black residents than in comparison to other states. The, the city of Atlanta has a large number of black residents. But the, like as far as the states are concerned, like if, if it mm-hmm. were a state, it would have, I think, is that right? The majority of black it, residents?
1: It would be plurality black. So right now the... Um, Because of, you know, gentrification and a lot of other factors, the black population in D.C. has shrunk from well above 50 percent to just under 50. So now the city is about 47 percent black, but it's still majority not white. So it's majority black people and people of color and fewer white people. Um, So it would would be the only state in the union that was plurality black, which is a huge deal. There is no other state that would have quite that high a percentage of black people living in it um, in the country.
0: Right. No, I just thought about that because you were talking about cities versus states. So you'd basically turn the city into a state and that would be, wow, unprecedented actually.
1: We're small, but we have more people living here than live in Wyoming that live in Vermont. There are other small states. Rhode Island is very small and Hawaii is very small. You know, square footage is not how we decide whether or not a place should be a state. And I think we are in good shape to become a state. We have lots of people that live here. Um, We have a very diverse citizenry and economy, I think, you know, we're ready to go. We're ready to be a state.
0: Right. Well, you have, you know, just under three quarters of a million residents, right? Like Mm -hmm. you mentioned, it's quite a large population and you pay taxes right? Yeah, so we pay a lot yeah. of taxes. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. So I mean, well, you know, with that in mind, how is this even legal? You know, the whole taxation without representation thing? How is this even legal? Yeah, I mean, for, for folks who have
1: visited DC or you may or people may have seen, that's on our license plate. No taxation without representation. Like that's the promise of this country is that you should have, if you pay taxes here, you should have a say in how those tax dollars are spent. But we don't. We, we pay more in federal taxes per capita than anywhere else in the country. And we pay more total in federal taxes than 22 other states. DC residents are pulling their weight in this country. And yet we have no say over how that money is actually spent in Congress. Now, it's legal. It's, I mean, I think no taxation without representation is a, is a promise, but it's not a guarantee. But that's the fight. That's the fight that DC residents have been waging for decades to get some say in how our money
0: is spent. Right. I'm just curious as to, you know, why this wasn't pursued sooner, right? I, I don't know if there if this bill has ever come to the floor before, but, you it, know.
1: It did once. Back in 1993, um, for the first time ever, there was a vote on D.C. statehood uh, back in 1993. Um, our non-voting delegate, Eleanor Holmes Norton, had introduced the bill. She's still our delegate, um, still our only representative in Congress, and she has no vote. But it failed. Even a bunch of Democrats voted against D.C. statehood. And a lot of them made a lot of the same arguments that Republicans make now um, in opposition to D.C. statehood. So this vote that happened on June 26th was the first time that the D.C. statehood bill had ever in the history of our country passed either chamber of Congress, and it passed the House, and it was great. And actually, some of the Democrats who were in the House in 1993 are still around, and they all voted yes on DC statehood. So it's been a huge, huge shift in the popularity of statehood or the acknowledgement that this is a problem. I mean, I think it's been a huge shift in the Democratic Party alone. Now, we haven't gotten any Republicans to join this bill yet. But just getting every single Democrat but one to vote yes on DC statehood is a Huge, huge, massive victory because you know anybody who was around in 1993 would not take that for granted at all.
0: Wait, who didn't vote? Tell me.
1: It was um, it was <laughs> Colin Peterson of Minnesota, which is not surprising. He t- he tends to vote badly a lot of the time. <laughs> he votes he votes uh, with, he votes with Donald Trump quite a bit. I want to say he voted. He voted badly on impeachment too, but I actually don't remember that off the top of my head, but he's, he's, um, he's a very conservative Democrat. It's not necessarily surprising that he voted against it, but it is surprising that some of the other conservative Democrats didn't join him in that vote. You know, I think um, I, I never would have guessed that some of the more conservative, like more moderates, like Jim Cooper of Tennessee, he's very, he's often voted to overturn DC local laws and he's a Democrat. He's supposed to be our friend. He voted in favor of D.C. statehood. He, and he had voted against it back in 1993. So this was a huge, huge moment. And, you know, you were saying at the top that th- this bill is going to go to die in the Senate, which it will. You know, Mitch McConnell has called D.C. statehood full bore socialism because, you know. Inf- oh, we'll talk about that yeah, later. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Enfranchising 700,000 people is bad now. Um, and it will go to die there. But I don't want to I don't want to gloss over the, like this huge moment of getting that many Democrats, at least, to validate. The fight for statehood. It was just a huge, huge moment. It was amazing to watch.
0: I mean, I don't know you're saying that. And I'm, I am i guess I just don't really know the history of this that well. But I'm thinking 1993, of course, all Democrats would have. Voted. I just don't. You, you've kind of blown my mind there. Like what arguments were made on the Democratic side in 1993 against D.C. statehood?
1: Um, you know, a lot of them, a lot of those arguments we would now clock as very conservative arguments. You know, DC's too small. Uh, D.C. doesn't know how to manage its finances. We can't trust D.C. officials, uh, you know, because they're too corrupt. Now, fortunately, for like most members of Congress, state and local corruption does not preclude you from becoming a state, which is good news for their for their home (laughs) state. Um, But, you know, whatever. And there's lots of excuses as to why D.C. shouldn't be a state. But there really is no legitimate reason against it. And it's just been decades of grassroots advocacy that has brought all of these democrats around it was a ton of work to get them there and you know a lot of it was personal steny hoyer who is now uh, like second in command in the house he's from maryland he also voted against dc statehood back in 1993 because he didn't want dc if the, if dc ever became a state we would be allowed to tax maryland residents we would be able to charge them like a toll say if they commuted from maryland into dc and so he voted yeah so he voted against (laughs) it because he was trying to protect his constituents from from added the added cost of commuting into the district so and he voted yes this time like that's a huge huge victory and it's really crazy that a bunch of democrats were on the wrong side of history back in 1993 but they got there but they didn't get there without a lot of work a lot of effort.
0: Yeah. Thinking about that story you just told me about Sidney Hoyer, just thinking about it, like he, he does have an election that he wanted to to, to win. Right. I'm not playing mm-hmm. devil's advocate, but I'm just trying to get into the mindset of someone who would vote that way. Right. Because in 1993, had the vote passed and, you know, D.C. had been made a state, even in 1993, that would have benefited Democrats nationally. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, considering the population of, of DC, it would have benefited them, but he had to make a choice, just, you know, him just picking on him right now. And you know, he had to make a choice about how his constituents would view that mm-hmm. and whether he'd be punished or not with reelection.
1: Yeah. It was a hyper-local concern, I think, for him at the time. And and I won't lie, actually, to your point about, um, you know, kind of what's changed between now and then. I mean, I think the biggest thing that's changed is Donald Trump. You know, I think Democrats are have been very wary in the past of doing things that look like they're trying to grab power, to do like a power grab. And a lot of people thought, I think at the time, that that's what that would look like to the American people. If we made D.C. a state, that's a power grab because they would elect two Democratic senators to the Senate if they became a state. And that's, quote, unquote, unfair. But I think what Donald Trump has shown is that actually, you know, people who uh, are kind of left leaning, liberal, liberal minded, actually are the majority of the people in this country but they are not the majority of the people that make up the Senate. There's really only only one way to fix that problem. And that's by making the Senate more representative of America as a whole by creating more states. And you kind of have to start with D.C. when you are having that conversation.
0: Yeah. So can you talk about, you know, historically, some of the arguments that were made earlier in the 20th century against D.C. statehood? Because some of them were just blatantly racist.
1: For sure. Yeah. I, I mean, and this goes back hundreds of years. I mean, historically, D.C. has been a majority Black jurisdiction. And the reason for that is because Lincoln actually emancipated slaves in the district about nine months before. The Emancipation Proclamation. So immediately, you know, hundreds, if not thousands, of Black people in the district became free, and then D.C. became a really popular place for recently freed or even, in some cases, escaped slaves to go because they knew they could live there freely. And that's like the foundation for why our city became, uh, you know, it used to be known as Chocolate City because so many Black people <laughs> lived here. Like that's the reason. That's how it all started. So going back, you know, 200 years, you know, white conservative. Uh, members of Congress are looking around thinking like that's a lot of black people. We cannot, <laughs> we like, we cannot give these pe- these people political power because that will be bad for us. That will harm our interests as white, sometimes slave owning property owners. So if this has been a long, a long time project to deny political power to the district, just simply based on demographics, just simply based on the fact that lots of black people lived here. Now over the course of the years, that intention stayed the same, but they got a lot more clever and subtle in their messaging. So instead of just explicitly saying, I would like to deny black people political power, they came up with a lot of other arguments as to why DC shouldn't be a state, none of which are particularly compelling, but that's how they, how they do it now. I mean, this is not, this is really not long enough ago. I mean, this happened back in the 1960s. DC sent its first budget ever to Congress to be approved And a white conservative lawmaker responded to our black mayor with a cart full of watermelons in response to this budget. I mean, this has been going on for years. And now, most recently, how this manifests is you have senators like Tom Cotton, who just the other day gave some remarks where he said, Well, you know, Wyoming is a real state, it's working class, we have lots of miners. Or Wyoming has a lot of minors and real people, real working class type of people. D.C. doesn't have that. I mean, that's like the loudest dog whistle you can imagine, <laughs> like what oh Tom gosh. Cotton is really talking about when he says Wyoming and working class. Everybody knows Wyoming is overwhelmingly white. So nothing has changed except the language that they use. I mean, those historical arguments denying political power to the District of Columbia, it's all rooted in. And race, quite frankly. And so when you hear senators talking about, you know, working class people here deserve representation, but these people in D.C. don't, that's really what they're saying. That's really what they're talking about.
0: Yeah, you know, we could have a whole episode just talking about, you know, how one defines working class, specifically conservatives, right? When Mm -hmm. they say working class, what they mean is is white, because, you know, I mean, you know, working in a restaurant, that's working class, is it not? (laughs) Mm -hmm. You would think so, but not if you're Tom
1: Cotton, I guess.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Wow. Okay. so so those are some of the arguments that were made today. And historically, let's talk about Mitch McConnell's comments, socialism did he ever, what was his comment actually? What
1: was he the said, quote exactly? He said that um, D.C. statehood is tantamount to full bore socialism. So now did he explain that? Well, the argument he's trying to advance is that Democrats are trying to do a paragraph. So like I said, this, our city is mostly not white. A lot of us who live here are progressives. I think Hillary Clinton won D.C. in the 2016 election 94 percent, like you won 94% of the vote back in 2016. So yes, we elect Democrats here. Um, So I think the point that Mitch McConnell was trying to make was that this is nothing more than a power grab by the Democrats. They don't actually care about DC statehood. They don't care about the promise of no taxation without representation. They merely care about taking over the Senate with socialists. That would be elected by D.C. residents. It's obviously nonsense, but it is a way for him to kind of whip up their base into a frenzy about granting voting rights to 700,000 mostly not white people who live in a big city
0: you know yeah i mean that's amazing because it actually has nothing i mean there's there's no connection to socialism whatsoever but nope. that word has just become a, a scary word mm-hmm. you can say anything is socialism right police reform is socialism you know they, yeah. yeah and they do they do do that they do that for nearly
1: every single progressive priority is is socialist so you know you can just kind of Tune it out, <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah. it, does have, it does have real world effects for for the people that live here. I mean, you know, as we've been talking about, this victory in the House was so hard fought to get to this point, and to know that it's just kind of kind of go to the Senate and be ignored, and that Republicans are going to go out of their way to kind of undermine this fight in the Senate. It's it's, it's a hard pill to swallow for sure, but. It's not the end of the story at all.
0: Yeah. So I so I get the connection as to why they don't want D.C. to be a state now. We've talked about, you know, Democrats historically not wanting that. But now, you know, most Democrats, except that one that one person, (laughs) um, you know, they're voting for this. But I, I still haven't made the connection as to, you know, the logical argument they're making for their voters nationally.
1: I guess the argument for Republicans is not so much, hey, um, voters, you should care about D.C. statehood on the merits. It's more like you should care about the to the extent that you already hate Democrats, you should hate them for this, too, because you should view this as a power grab, even though that's not what this is about. Like, this is this is not about trying to steal power that doesn't belong to us. This is about sharing in the promise of what this country is supposed to be, which is everybody gets a say and how the country is run. And right now, the United States is not living up to its promise for the people that live in its capital city, you know? yeah. So so I'm not so sure that Republican voters really care about DC statehood on the merits of what I think that Republican members of Congress are banking on is that they will perceive it as being socialism, as being some sort of unfair deal, you know, that sort of thing, even though it really isn't. Any of any of those things.
0: Yeah, you know, I think what we just heard here in my last question is that their arguments for anything, you know, that would expand democracy, they're becoming so irrational that even you know trying to have a discussion about them an intellectual discussion, you, your brain just gets tangled. Like what?
1: Yeah, <laughs> like what's going
0: on here? I can't even explain the argument against it because it doesn't make any sense. It's
1: all totally bad faith, and I think um, for anyone who watched the debate on the House floor over the D.C. statehood bill, the Republican side, just they had nothing. They were really grasping at straws because there are no good faith arguments to oppose D.C. statehood. There just aren't. And they and they know that and they know it's not the 1800s anymore. So they can't just be explicitly racist. And so instead they come up with other stuff like, uh, you know, no real people live in D.C. or there's no working class people in D.C., But it just it didn't work this time, at least not for the House vote.
0: Yeah. You know, I actually did not watch it. And and you did watch it, obviously. Did anyone just come out and, you know, call their bluff and just say, hey, you know, this is about race on the Democratic side? Oh,
1: yeah. Uh, uh, Many, many Democrats pointed (laughs) it out. Yeah. And I was very glad about that because I think, you know, Democrats don't always have the courage to talk about racial justice issues sometimes. But uh, this time they did. And it was really heartening to see because this is not. Uh, because I think you just really need to call it like it is. This is not about whether or not statehood is constitutional. It is, that's another argument Republicans make. If this is not about whether or not D.C. can raise enough tax revenue. That's not a real problem. We can raise enough tax revenue. It's not about any of that stuff. It's not about the health of D.C.'s economy, which is doing just great, by the way. It's about this other thing. It is about the fact that this city is historically Black. It is about the fact that this city is mostly Democrats, and they don't want to give up any power, especially when the system benefits them, benefits Republicans so disproportionately. So that's what this is about. And 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 the Democrats did a fantastic job at making that point on the House floor.
0: Yeah, you're right. And, you know, I'm a Democrat. I'm a lifelong Democrat. You know, I'm Black, by the way, which you may or may not know. <laughs> <laughs> but I was raised in a, you know, Southern Black family. So it's, you know, it's obviously I'm a Democrat. We, we all were. And, you know, I can say that I agree with you, this level of openness and allegiance to causes like Black Lives Matter and, you know, calling things for what they are like, you know, this this House vote on the D.C. statehood bill. And, you know, just, you know, everyone, you know, not just the black members of Congress, but everyone or a lot of people except that one guy. Um, (laughs) (laughs) You know, they, they are speaking up on race. And I this moment, I don't know. I know people are saying it feels very different. But I do feel like, you know, we are, I don't know how to how to articulate it, heading into a new era of openness in talking about race on the political level. Yeah, I
1: I think that that I think that you're right about that. This does feel really different to me. And, you know, like you, I've lived through dozens of flashpoints like this, where a black person was murdered at the hands of police, you know, like just plainly stating what goes on. And this has happened way too many times for either of us to count. But something about this does feel really, really different. Like the sustained momentum of the protests, of the marches, I think really has changed things. Um, It kind of remains to be seen how it will manifest, but I actually think the DC statehood bill is one really clear example of how the, the left's commitment to racial justice manifested. Like, I think that's a very, really good example of it. I I don't think that that vote for DC statehood would have happened on the 26th if there had not been weeks of Black Lives Matter protests leading up to that moment. I think the reason for that is, you know, I think particularly in DC, now the fact that we're not a state means that we have kind of second class status. And one of the ways that that reveals itself is that the federal government has a lot of authority over like the day-to-day operations of the city. There's a ton of federal law enforcement in the city and they have jurisdiction all over in ways that they would not have in other states. So like, for example, in Washington state, the military can't just show up unannounced and clear you out of a protest that violates the constitution. (laughs) In DC, the federal government can do that. And we saw Donald Trump do that. So on one of the first nights of the protests, he sent out, United States Park Police, these are federal officers who have jurisdiction over um, national parks. The park right across the street from the White House is technically a national park. He sent them in alongside um, local police and other federal law law enforcement officers, as well as military personnel, to clear out that park using tear gas and violence, all so that he could go get um, a photo opportunity in front of a church that's right over there. This could not happen anywhere else but D.C. because of the authority that the president has over law enforcement in the District of Columbia. So we have had a sustained military presence in our city because we are not a state, because we don't have full autonomy over our own affairs. And people notice that really viscerally in a way that they don't always notice how the federal government interferes with D.C. This was such a plain and violent and kind of explosive example of the ways that the federal government messes with us the only solution to this problem is to become a state and so i don't think that the the statehood vote would have happened without all those protests i just i just really don't i think that people finally got a sense of what it is we go through as dc residents what we have to put up with especially if there's a republican in the white house that's what we deal with every day and it only happens because we're not a state.
0: Right. You know, thank you for mentioning that because I, I actually did not understand that. And I think a lot of people in other parts of the country were kind of flummoxed as to how he could deploy the police and you know the military into a park for a peaceful protest. And we were just like how could that how could that happen? How like how is that legal? I mean, he's is doing a lot of things that that aren't legal. Yes. A lot of people were confused by that.
1: Yeah, and I think that's one of the kind of hidden downsides of living in D.C., you know, that, um, you know, there's actually a provision in the law, too, that allows, that gives the president authority to federalize our local police, which he did not do. But it's really scary to think that somebody as kind of unhinged as Donald Trump having that kind of authority to to basically weaponize um, our local police force as well, in addition to like a literal actual military agents that he called in to clear out a peaceful protest. It's really, really scary. Um, we also, here in DC, we don't have a local prosecutor. Our local crimes are prosecuted by the Department of Justice, which means that Donald Trump gets to pick the person who prosecutes our local crimes. Like somebody who commits like a local offense here in DC will get prosecuted by a Department of Justice attorney. So there, mass incarceration is a problem everywhere. It's a, it's a problem here in DC too. And there's pretty much nothing we can do about any of that since the president gets to pick the person who prosecutes the crimes and sends people to jail. It's it's like those, that's what we're dealing with here now that we, yeah. since we're not a
0: state. So back on the the idea of this being a, a moment that's very different, right? And I, I think that you're right about the DC statehood vote probably would not have happened, but for the national protests, the sustained national protests and they're worldwide too, which is also really surprising. But then secondly, you know, Pennsylvania Avenue, you know, has Black Lives Matter, you know, Paint mm-hmm. it and block letters across the street. So I'm just curious, what what is it like there now? Is is it still militarized? Do you still have this presence there? You know what's going on?
1: Yeah, uh, people are still social distancing, but actually the turnout for the protests ha- has been incredibly high. I I've, I went out to a few myself, um, and I was pleasantly surprised at the number of people that I saw, and I was really really impressed with how seriously people at the protest. This is a side point, but I was really really impressed with how seriously people took. Social distancing, wearing masks. I didn't see anybody take a mask off the entire time they're at the protest. So even though we're technically supposed to be staying at home, lots of people think that these protests are worth the risk because of how just how unjust these killings of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and others have been.
0: Where does this go from here? If this is going to die in the Senate, right, which is unfortunate because it's taken so long to get the votes, you know, even on the Democratic side, like, you know, where do we go from here? Let's assume that, you know, Democrats take the Senate, you know, in November, you know, hopefully, and the White House. But if they don't, (laughs) you know, how, how, you know, will it, will we have the momentum to, you know, to carry this into November or beyond, and if not, you know, what are some other ways to get this passed? Yes, we have the
1: momentum. Um, I, if we win back the Senate and we win the White House, we have a very good chance of making D.C. the 51st state. It's going to be a lot of work still. You know, Not every Democrat currently in the Senate is a co-sponsor of the D.C. statehood bill, so there's some work to do still on the Senate side, and that is uh, Indivisible's plan at least for the next few months for sure. But the goal is to get as much support behind D.C. statehood both as a matter of democracy and also as a racial justice issue so that we can hit the ground running in January 2021 and really get serious about making this happen for real. If we do not win back the Senate or if we don't win back the White House. Yeah, I think we'll have like bigger problems on our hands than (laughs) (laughs) the scenario in which, you know, Joe Biden wins in November, but say we don't win back the Senate, then the big fight becomes winning back the Senate in 2022. There's still a chance. Actually, the math looks a lot better for Democrats in 2022 than it does this year. So the fight doesn't, the fight doesn't end just because we don't win back the Senate. In fact, I think it would really imbue the fight going forward that, you know, this is really a chance to win back the Senate, do something that will, make the Senate more Democratic, little-de-Democratic, and really make sure that this country is working for everyone and not just a small few.
0: Yeah. I mean, maybe this is a naive question, but it just seems like this is something that would go to the Supreme Court at some point, you know? yeah, (laughs) I don't know.
1: Well, there's been lots of challenges in the past. None have been successful. But if D.C. became a state, that that would be challenged in court. You know, as I mentioned, you know, sometimes Republicans like to say that you know, statehood is unconstitutional. Um, it is not unconstitutional, but just because I think so doesn't mean that the conservative Supreme Court justices will agree with me on that. So for sure, if it becomes law and we start the process of making D.C. the 51st state, some Republicans somewhere will challenge that law and it will go to the courts. But I feel really good about that case and also that'd be a good problem to have because that would mean that it passed the house and the senate and the president signed it into law so i'd take it
0: yeah me too (laughs) (laughs) well megan hatcher mays thank you so much for joining me and thank you for all of your work and your activism i really appreciate you and and i'll be watching this thank you
1: so much for having me